Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Iran's Islamic Republic turns 40 years old this year having proven to be one of the more durable states in the Middle East, despite a decades-long confrontation with the U.S. But how stable is the Islamic Republic? Tehran has invested heavily in supporting Syria's Bashar al-Assad. It's squared off against Saudi Arabia for regional supremacy and is now dealing with a more provocative U.S. president in Donald Trump. Joining us to hash it all out is Alex Vatanka, senior fellow with the Middle East Institute, specializing in Middle East regional security affairs with a focus on Iran. Alex, thanks for joining The Crisis Next Door. Thank you, Jason. Alex, before we get into Iran's relationships with outside states, let's look inside. In a piece looking ahead at 2019, you wrote about the growing discontent facing the Islamic Republic at home. Now, when the referendum established the Islamic Republic in 1979, had over 98% of Iranians voting in favor of it. Where do you think that approval rating currently stands? Well, Jason, I think, frankly, if we go back to the year 1979, I think most historians would agree that a majority of Iranians at the time wanted the Shah of Iran, the pro-American monarch of that country, to uh, basically go away and, and, and give power to someone else, to something else. But very few people at the time, almost 40 years ago, knew what that something else would be. So you made reference to the 98% who voted in, a, in that referendum. Most likely that was not a fair or free referendum to begin with. But what they did have on that ballot that year was whether Iranians wanted a Islamic Republic or a monarchy. And they chose an Islamic Republic, but very few people knew at the time what that would mean. Certainly, I, I would go as far as saying very few people expected to end up with a system that they have today where you have an unelected supreme leader at the top of the pyramid of power in that country who is not elected by the people and who is by far the most powerful actor in the Iranian political system shaping Iran's domestic and foreign policy. So if you listen to young Iranians today who were not around back in 1979, they'll tell you, you know what, our parents or grandparents might have wanted to get rid of the Shah but they had no idea what would replace the monarchy. And what has, in fact, replaced the monarchy is no better. In, in, in many ways, is so much worse. Are young Iranians more concerned about what's happening internally with politics in Iran? Or is Iran's outside moves throughout the Middle East more of a concern? Or is it a combination of both? You know, I think what the Iranian regime is doing right now in terms of its policies in the Middle East is a pursuit of an ideological agenda 
and it has very little to to do with the national security interests of Iran, the country of Iran, and it's all about this ideology of a regime. Uh, in my view, that you know is basically stuck in the past. It was created in 1979 at a time where the world was divided between the United States and the Soviet Union. These people came to power under the leadership of Ayatollah Khomeini and vowed that they would be different. They would go a separate way. And the, the path they chose, according to themselves, is the sort of political Islam. But 40 years later, when you look at what this political Islam stands for, certainly at home is not delivering. If you look at the headlines coming out of Iran today, we're talking about grievances ranging from widespread corruption, mismanagement, hypocrisy, we, we have a regime that talks about, you know, being fair and just. And in fact, uh, the opposite is mostly the, the case. Um, you got an elite that's detached from ordinary Iranians. You have a foreign policy. You mentioned Syria earlier. What is Iran's national security interest in being in Syria as it has been since 2011? Now, I asked that question because many Iranians asked that question. Why do we need to invest billions of dollars? Why do we need to be in serious support a man by the name of Bashar al-Assad? Why do we need to support Hezbollah in Lebanon? Why do we need to be opposed to the uh, existence of the state of Israel? These are not concerns of your average Iranians. These are ideological, uh, the, uh, the ideological agenda of an Iranian regime that, in my view, frankly, is increasingly detached from, from its own population. Are Iranians turning to secularism at all? Obviously, they've been living under pretty severe social codes that have restricted personal freedom for several decades now. You know, if, if I was an Iranian Islamist cleric, I would have a good argument to be against this regime and everything it stands for, because basically this is what's happened in Iran. Because they've politicized religion, because they have turned Islam into a political vehicle, every time they get something wrong on the political, economic, social, foreign policy front, guess where people oftentimes blame? They blame religion. They blame Islam. So you absolutely, you, you don't only have a trend towards people turning their backs on Islam, the religion, and embracing secularism as a path forward. In, in many cases, people are actually converting away from the religion and embracing other religions. So you have now Statistics are hard to come by, but you have hundreds of thousands of Iranians who, over the course of the last few decades since this Islamic Republic was born, have turned to Christianity. Different branches of Christianity are converting away from, from Islam. This is very new phenomena, and I can only explain it by saying that people are just disillusioned in everything this regime is doing in the name of Islam. And they're pursuing policies that are not delivering for the vast masses, but for a very few that are ide ideologically committed to this regime or a part of the elite that frankly don't care. But this is where they're sort of, if you will, their bread is buttered and they're sticking with this model. But vast majority of Iranians saying enough is enough. But the question for them is, what can they do about it? Because whether they like it or not, the regime still has the guns. And they have proven themselves to be more than happy to use those guns to stay in power, should there be need. We've seen rising discontent among the general population in Iran, street protests. And we've seen this before with the Green Movement in 2009, when protesters demanded the removal of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. 
But the demonstrations did not lead to the collapse of the Islamic Republic like some had predicted. What would it take for there to be a severe threat internally to the Islamic Republic? You know, I think, you know, what is true is this. You got a long list of various groups who feel that this system no longer delivers on the basics for them, their families. At the same time, the state is pretty powerful. I mean, Iran is not some colonial creation that's been around only a few decades. It's an old imperial state with institutions that have you know, been around for centuries. So the state, as of today, is still powerful. And it, I think it, every time you have protest on a limited localized level, the state can uh, take its forces out and neutralize those protests as they've done repeatedly uh, in recent years. So I guess in many ways what we need to watch out for is uh, division within the ranks of the regime being a key factor to watch out for. We know there is disagreement. We know we know there's severe disagreement within the regime about the way forward. You got, and I know in the United States we tend to sort of downplay the differences between so-called hardliners and moderates because we don't see much of a difference, and there's a lot of truth in that. But in terms of Iranian domestic politics, at least those differences matter. The hardliners do want to take the country in a different direction, the so-called moderate or reformist. Uh, and I think, you know, when this Iranian supreme leader, who will be turning 80 soon, when when he dies at some point, what will happen to this country's trajectory going forward? What about the succession process? Could it be an orderly succession process, or would it end up being a mess? I don't know the answer to that. But frankly, I don't think anybody really knows the answer to that as we speak right now. The U.S. has long encouraged dissident groups in Iran to rise up against the Islamic Republic. How serious is this investment, and do these groups pose any realistic threat to Tehran? You know, you're right in saying the U.S. has in the past uh, paid lip service, at least to some of these opposition groups. But I think it's far-fetched to say the U.S. really has had a a methodical approach to using Iranian opposition groups as a way of leverage or putting pressure on the Iranian regime. I don't even see it right now. I think the Trump administration, on the one hand, has left the door open for Iranian opposition groups to come and meet and, and share ideas, perhaps. But what does that really amount to when the president of the United States at the same time repeatedly has said to the Iranian leadership, whenever you want to talk, I'm here, let's talk. And it basically tells everyone who cares to listen that the president of the United States could deal with this Iranian regime. It's not about the nature of the regime. It's about whether the Iranian regime is willing to give this American president what he wants. We don't know what that is. We have a good idea what it is, but we don't know exactly what he will settle for. But nonetheless, if I'm in the Iranian opposition, I'm asked to stick my neck out, potentially put my life in danger. I have to ask myself, can I trust President Trump's Iran policy? And I think a lot of people have, have serious misgivings about that. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the Islamic Republic's 40th anniversary this year. And we're talking with Alex Vitanka, senior fellow with the Middle East Institute. How much pain are the new sanctions that President Trump has enacted on Iran bringing to not only the government, but also the general population in Iran? 
Uh, there's no doubt sanctions are having a real impact. I mean, let me just give you one uh, example of that. This is a country that still relies on a good portion of its uh, budget being filled by export uh, or revenue of oil exports, I should say. So you, you, you have now um, uh, the imposition of American sanctions on countries that have been buying Iranian oil. When that oil can be exported, that means less money comes into Iran. That means less money is in the system. So right there you have, uh, you know, an issue, uh, an example of how the economy is suffering. But it's much broader than that. It's about lack of confidence. Fundamentally, there's a lack of confidence in Iran as an economy, even though on paper it has so much going for it. It's got the largest oil and gas reserves, uh, reserves anywhere in the world by any country. Right? right away, it should be a super energy power. It's a huge market, relatively speaking, of 80 million people. It's hungry for all sorts of consumer goods investment. But both domestic, that's Iranian investors, and foreign investors look at Iran and, and sort of still not sure whether this is a place you want to put your money down because you don't know where the country's foreign policy is going, what the future of the uh, political system in Iran will be once Ayatollah Khamenei, the present supreme leader, leaves the stage. And as we know, investors don't like to be surprised. They want predictability, they want stability. And unfortunately for this Iranian regime and the Iranian people, that one is in short supply right now in, in the case of Iran. Do you think the renewed sanctions could be encouraging hardliners in Tehran to push forward on nuclear weapons development? And what would it take to stop that from happening? If that's a decision that the Iranian hardliners make, that the only way they can regain some leverage over against the United States and the world community, primarily the Europeans and U.S., that is, uh, that's a risk they would have to take because, you know, ultimately, uh, as President Trump and others have said, U.S. response could easily be a military one to, to try and stop or at least um, slow uh, that um, that Iranian rush for a bomb. Now, it has to be said, as of today, there's no evidence that the Iranians have an ongoing nuclear weapons program. Uh, they are doing everything they said they would do as part of the nuclear deal of 2015. They're sticking with it based on what the United Nations is reporting back. Uh, but if sh should they change course, that would be a radical departure. And that really would, I think, put the question of the best way forward uh, in a new light and it would put us in a position where people will start talking about a military option uh, as perhaps the only option going forward. I know President Trump doesn't want to go there. He wants to be reelected, and he does not want to have another major Middle Eastern war. And any conflict with Iran would be on a major scale, bigger than anything we've seen in Iraq and Afghanistan. So he would not have an easy decision to make either. So. Uh, you know, I'm personally hoping we're not going to get there. Get there. I, I hope that we're going to um, have the Iranian side, um, you know, have another think about what what it is they want. The, the demands by the Trump administration might sound on paper uh, tough for them to, to meet, and they are tough. I mean, they're ranging from what Iran does on human rights to its foreign policy. So, you know, uh, it, it would require a lot of concessions on the part of Tehran to, to, to move the ball forward. But it's not just the Trump administration. And that's the point. It, I think a lot of those demands that the Trump administration has put forward and asking the Iranian regime to, to sort of meet them halfway are actually demands of the Iranian people. 
Um, so I, you know, I, I guess the optimistic in me uh, would would say, in a longer term, perhaps uh, there will be a, a political settlement. But at the same time, I don't think it will happen on President Trump's watch. I think what the Iranian regime is hoping for is that this will be a one-term American president, that whoever is going to come into the White House after him will be someone they can talk to, um, and they have to go ahead and prepare the ground for that if that's what they think uh, U.S. Uh, politics is going. Optimism is always appreciated. It tends to come in rather short supply regarding global affairs, in particular in the Middle East. Uh, if there ever was a confrontation between the U.S. and Iran, it would surely bring in Saudi Arabia, perhaps Israel, on the side of the U.S. Uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia have been squaring off for quite some time now over Middle East uh, supremacy. And Iran's support of Houthi rebels in Yemen has fueled its rivalry with Saudi Arabia to new heights. Uh, where do you think Iran is going with uh, the Houthis in Yemen? Is it basically being an irritant to Saudi Arabia or does it have grander plans for the Gulf region? I mean, and this is oftentimes the case with the Iranian regime. I mean, let me give you an example here. Uh, let's look at Iran's missiles. Iran is not the only country in the Middle East with a uh, you know, large missile arsenal. There are other countries. I can name Turkey, Pakistan, Israel, Saudi Arabia. Why is it we always talk about Iran? And the reason is because of Iranian rhetoric, be because of the ideology. So when they come and say our missile arsenal is purely for defensive uh, policies, that might make sense had it not been for the case of the rhetoric of the last 40 years the rhetoric that they want to change the order in the region and beyond. It's the rhetoric that makes everybody suspicious, and I think that includes the Saudis. The Saudis probably deep down know what is happening in Yemen is an opportunity for Iran to come in and, if you will, poke the Saudis in the eye. There might be some small amounts of weapons or money from Iran going to the so-called Houthi rebels in Yemen, but Iran did not create the Yemeni-Saudi conflict. Everyone knows that. The Iranians are just tapping into it. It's a case of opportunism for them. But the Saudis can't afford to be, uh, despite the fact I should say I'm against the Saudi intervention in Yemen. I think it's, it's self-defeating from Saudi Arabia's perspective. And I certainly think the United States should distance itself from that war. But if I'm sitting in Riyadh, and I think that's the debate they're having among the Saudi elite is, what if Yemen turns into South Lebanon with a Hezbollah type of model emerging that is then beholden to Iran under our exposed underbelly. Can we afford that strategically in years to come? And clearly the Saudis made a decision that they couldn't afford that, and that's why they intervened in Yemen the way they did. Uh, but, you know, it goes back to what Iran really wants to be. On the one hand, they claim they want to be part of the solution, uh, and, and I think no serious country in the Middle East can say they can be a solution to many conflicts of the region without some kind of Iranian involvement. But the question, at, at, what, at what cost? And is Iran willing to, genuinely willing to, uh, you know, cut back on the rhetoric, on the sort of ideological revolutionary Islamism that we've come to know about Iran since 1979? I think fun fundamentally that's what's at stake here. Can And I'm borrowing, obviously, a phrase here from, uh, Henry Kissinger, but can Iran be a normal state uh, with normal interests that states have that, that they pursue, uh, or will Iran remain sort of a revolutionary 
state that wants to export its its revolution if it's the latter if it remains dedicated to its revolution then it's not a surprise that neighboring states fear that revolutionary message they fear they will become a victim of it and therefore they're preparing to oppose it in in any way they can and that's basically where we are today as of now in early 2019 you mentioned South Lebanon. Iran's support for Shiite groups in Syria and Lebanon has risen alarm bells in Israel. And the Israelis have regularly bombed sites in Syria, suspected weapon transfers to Hezbollah in South Lebanon. Now, Tehran has shown restraint and has not struck back at any Israeli assets. Is that just a matter of time before that happens? You know, I don't think the Iranians would in any way or shape underestimate what it would mean to get involved in a military conflict with Israel. We don't say this publicly as often as we should, but Israel is a nuclear-armed country with hundreds of nuclear uh, devices at their disposal. The Iranians know that. So what the Iranians are doing right now is buying time, uh, staying the course, if you will, paying the price for the, the path they've chosen to be on, including basically Iranian silence in the face of repeated Israeli strikes against Iranian assets inside Syria in the last few months, if, if not years by now, uh, with the hope that eventually by the time they're done with their project, they've got themselves a consolidated military position uh, where from which they can sort of, if you will, tell the Israelis, now we're next door, now we're here, uh, and what are you going to do about it? Again, that might, from a military Iranian point of view, make sense. But I just want to go back to a point I made earlier. If you're ordinary Iranian right now in Iran, looking to feed your family, get a job, have opportunities, just live a normal life, you're asking yourself the question, we're doing everything we're doing right now. We're taking all these sanctions on. We are bleeding on every front imaginable. So we can say to the Israelis we, or, or to the Saudis in Yemen that we're next door. I mean, that is the sort of power projection that might make sense if you're an ideologue, but if you're ordinary Iranian, that seems to be just too much uh, to be asked of Iranians to pay for, and that's exactly what they're doing. These sanctions imposed on Iran are not happening in vacuum. It's a reflection of a foreign policy that I think has been mistaken since 1979, it began with the taking over the U.S. Embassy in November of 1979, the greatest mistake this regime did early on in its life. And they just continued being on a mistaken foreign policy path for 40 years. And unfortunately, right now, I don't see any signs that they're about to, uh, you know, make uh, make any great changes. The Islamic Republic turns 40 years old and faces great questions in 2019. Alex, thank you very much for joining us here on The Crisis Next Door. Great to be with you, Jason. Thank you. We've been joined by Alex Vatanka, Senior Fellow with the Middle East Institute, specializing in Middle East regional security affairs with a focus on Iran. You've been listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours 
and great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.